You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. All right, welcome back to another episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. I'm here with two of the co-hosts, Seth Abram, and we have Lindsay Marks on. Yo. And our guest today is Michael Naylor. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thanks. Michael, we ha- we're having you on today because uh, you recently released a book mm-hmm. that's been, what, 65 years in the making? Is that <laughs> well, right? Well, no, it's more like uh, 4,500 years. Several lifetimes. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Several lifetimes. Oh, that's great. Uh, and this is your first book, right? Or do you have a second one? No, this is this is my first published book. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, congrats, that's, man. That's exciting. No, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It was, How does it feel? Have it, have it right here. Well, it's a relief. Uh, it was much more difficult task than I ever imagined. And if I didn't have people mm. carrying me over the finish line, uh, I would still be thinking about how will I ever finish this book. <laughs> but it but it happened. <laughs> yeah. What did what did that look like to be carried over the finish line? Well, it was uh, it was reminders by people that I really trusted that I ought to really finish it. And uh, the closer I got mm. to finishing it. Mm. the more uh, my entire psyche rebelled against the idea. And I said, well, my inner critic has gone to new to new levels of hypnotizing me. So I just kept taking <laughs> the next step or the next step. Uh, like David White talks about that poem, uh, you know, start close in, do what's right in front of mm. you, that next thing that you don't want to mm. do. Well, that's with my meditation for, for three or mm. four months at least. Yeah. Yeah, Michael, yeah. Um, I'm especially curious about the actual process of writing this for you. When, um, well, maybe let's work backwards. Maybe first, what was the hardest part of writing this book? And then uh, then let's start at the beginning. Uh, let's skip the middle because I want to hear about how it actually started, when you started writing it too. But what was the hardest part of writing this for you? Hmm, the hardest part? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the the hardest part was the editing, uh, mm. which you know takes an eternity and going. I mean, I must have read the book twenty times and you know gone back and knock out a, a phrase here and you know had thank God I had a really good editor editors, uh, but it was uh, that was not particularly fun. You know, it's kind of like. Uh, uh, carrying a dead body with you uh, down the road, wondering if it's ever going <laughs> to breathe again. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, there was. Uh, you know, there's so many. At, at the end of it, I was so sick of my own words. I just didn't want to read another sentence. It's like, oh my god. And uh, and again, it, it's so hypnotizing. Yeah. You get in, and you know, and you know, as a songwriter, you can get tired of your your attempts and. Uh, so I had some objective people around me uh, saying, oh, uh, go forward. And then I sent it off to Russ Hudson. And he said, oh, my God, I love this. And I said, well, okay, the universe has approved. I guess I will go forward with it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait, Russ Hudson is the universe? Uh, he's, he's, <laughs> that's, that's, wow, he, okay. Uh, he, 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 he inhabits at least one universe I live in, so uh, uh, the Dalai Lama was not available. Okay. So, right. 
Um, right. But anyway, I started, oh, I started back in uh, uh, 2010 when Don uh, Riso was still alive. And I just right. wrote out a description of all the types with, uh, any, uh, with addiction in mind. And then, you know, I had a good 10 years of really intensive, you know, well, probably 15 years of working with men in recovery and so i just uh, i just started writing you know an hour a day uh my enneagram coach a type seven just write an hour a day and he said close enough is good enough for now don't worry about it being perfect uh which was interesting and it allowed me to keep going and i've just mm-hmm. been sort of going back and forth with it for at least 10 years and uh you know, giving up for a while, going, you know, and then I would meet somebody, you know, maybe a, a teacher I really respected, and they would read it and go, oh, you got to, you've given, you've conceived this, now you've got to give birth to this thing. There's a, there's no way out. You must finish. Mm. Of course, in uh, the Gurdjieff book, we talk a lot about finishing what you start. And so uh, it was interesting. In January, a friend of mine uh, died of ALS very quickly. And I said, oh, my oh, wow. God, I don't really know how long I'm going to be alive here. I better just take care of this now. This, you know, I do not want to be sitting on my deathbed going, oh, I wish I had finished this thing. So I just plowed into it in January. And um, so that's sort of the the brief story of how mm-hmm. it all happened. Who did you have in mind when you wrote this book, Michael? The first target really was uh, men in recovery and trying to give them information on how the Enneagram can help them because I've, I've been in recovery for myself uh, about 40 years and I've seen a lot of men start their recovery, do really well with recovery, and then six months down the road or a year down the road disappear. And so all the gains that they made vanished in, in a week. And uh, my thought was, uh, and again, this is the second audience I was hoping to have this impact sometime, maybe in my next lifetime, was uh, I noticed that a lot of times, you know, people feel pretty good when they first get sober, and mm. then the personality reasserts itself and comes back in. So we say in recovery sometimes they go through uh, a pink cloud period where everybody's happy you're sober, you're talking with family again, and out in the world again, and then these nagging personality patterns start to kick back in and people start to feel bad again and feel disappointed and unless they've got a an understanding that that will happen no matter what uh, a lot of them get sidetracked by it and if they had an understanding of the enneagram they would have a context to work with their suffering and, and get their hands on you know tools and support they need to uh, to stay sober and then the second group that often goes down is People have been sober 10 to 15 years and, you know, they've worked a program of integrity. Maybe they're using AA, maybe they're using a Zen practice or a Buddhist practice. But, um, you know, the longer people go along, if they're getting healthier, they start to wake up deeper patterns of suffering that they didn't know existed. And if they knew their type, they would have an understanding of what was coming up to meet them, you know, the kinds of um, mm-hmm. internal sufferings that, you know, by by type that everybody will experience as they um, transform themselves. So, so that's really was that was the first you know 
the the real group I was looking to is, is people who are trying to recover from addiction and to give them a sense of what they will face as they continue to evolve. So that's a, mm-hmm. a long answer to a short question. Oh, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Michael, if you could expound a little bit more on how you see the Enneagram uh, kind of offering maybe especially some additional insight into addiction? How do, how do you see those two kind of working together? Well, uh, for instance, you know, as a, a type four, you know, as I start to become uh, self-aware, I begin to notice I've got these patterns of uh, feeling like an outsider or getting caught up in envy movies where everybody else, you know, has it better than me and if the world would just wake up, they would see how awesome I was and mm-hmm. uh, patterns of entitlement, etc. And those, yes. those, uh, those patterns mm-hmm. have as their foundation, you know, suffering I went through as a little guy. Mm-hmm. And as I begin to, you know, become more present, relax my addiction to my type, what starts to wake up is that unresolved suffering. Uh, you know, that fueled the envy and that fueled the outsider stuff. And if I'm ready for that, I won't get freaked out by it because when it comes up, I'm going to feel as bad as I've ever felt until I go through the healing, the transformation. But there are lo- there are layers of it. It's kind of like a spiral, digging down, digging down. And at the core of it, we would say that, you know, as little ones, when we, you know, had to disconnect from essence because we live on planet Earth, that there was, you know, a core wound, a real sense of uh, losing contact with my, I guess you could say contact with the unconditional love, that I'm loved unconditionally. And whatever that, however that happened for each person, you know, if I know my Enneagram type, I'll know that the outsider pattern will pop up right in the midst of feeling like I got it made, or the envy pattern will come out of nowhere as, as it's time for me to go deeper and transform suffering. So that's kind of the theory. That's been my experience in my own growth is that we, you know, people around me that we, that there's layers that we peel off and we peel off. And based on my type, I can, if I understand the structure of my type, I will not be as nearly as surprised by what comes up in the form of emotional psychic suffering. And it will really provide me some wake up calls around when that suffering is being triggered. So, you know, and, and it, it, you know, if you study any of the, you know, teachers who've done long journeying, they'll say, you know, after 30 years of inner work, all of a sudden I hit something I'd not, I didn't have words for. It was, you know, just uh, made me feel like I was out on the desert with no water. All of a sudden, everything that really lifted me up just kind of vanished. And I was in really a, another dark night of the soul. And, you know, all the traditions talk about this, but based on my, my type, I can have an understanding of what that's going to feel like and, and really uh, have the understanding that I'm going to need to ask for help again. That this isn't something that I can navigate by myself. So anyway, I don't know if that's specific enough. It's a little conceptual for sure. One thing I wanted to say that I noticed about this book that was so lovely to me is that a lot of Enneagram literature just right out the gate, you go to your chapter for your type and they start telling you all the shadowy dark things, all the things people should sort of be suspicious about when it comes to you 
And what was so refreshing mm-hmm. about this book was that your um, your commitment to the inherent value and worth of each individual just really came through. Mm-hmm. I could mm-hmm. feel this sense of beholding the beauty of people who are struggling mm-hmm. um, with addiction mm-hmm. and who are actively in recovery. And I just wanted to thank you for the dignity that you bring to each person through this work. It was really wonderful. Um, oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. One thing that struck me was the title, the use of the word alchemy in the title. It's such a unique word to choose for an Enneagram book. And I just wondered if you could tell us why you chose that. It seems to me that uh, the Enneagram, when used in a conscious way, really is a, a transformative uh, tool that, that uh, you know, ultimately uh, it's about relaxing my personality trances so that what is innately good and wonderful and beautiful in me arises. So it's this idea of, you know, it's kind of like being in an alchemical fire when you start to bring in your understanding of the Enneagram and bring in the most, you know, really important ingredient is is self-observation, you know, with the Enneagram and self-observation, then, you know, one one of the theories, which I think is true, at least in my uh, small world, is that as I develop the ability to consciously observe my patterns when they're happening, that the observing them without condemning myself is what starts to break their hypnotic capacity to steer me into less healthy reactions. So, you know, uh, so alchemy seemed to really capture to me what, you know, it's like this, uh, it's the magic of of the Enneagram combined with compassionate self-observation that starts to uh, open the heart, uh, bring forth a quiet mind, uh, embodied presence. And that's also just, you know, part of the alchemy is this capacity also to see that everyone really fundamentally suffers as I do. They have, might have a different mix, but at the core of them, each human being uh, is a, a mutual suffering. And, you know, I really appreciate the words of Gurdjieff who said that until we truly understand that that everyone suffers as we do, that what he called enlightenment or transformation, final transformation will not occur. So to me, the, the Enneagram provides a ground for a lot of different alchemical spiritual awakenings along with lots of really fun journeys into the dark night of the soul at least 30 or 40 of those uh, just to keep us busy so anyway i don't know if that that answers your question it's great i was talking to my dad about this book in this interview and we got to talking about the word alchemy and he said well isn't it kind of funny like part of alchemy is you know thinking you can create gold right this is like where where it kind of comes from this word and this sort of science that predates mm. chemistry. And he mm-hmm. said, but you can't make gold. You have to discover it. It's already there. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's that's beautiful for what we're talking about, especially mm. in regard to people who maybe part of their addictions come from not knowing about the gold that is already mm. there. And then the work of uncovering that mm. using tools like the Enneagram. So. Well, I just love it. That's awesome. I think that's the best answer yet. 
So thank you for that. <laughs> I'm going I'm to write that down because somebody else will ask me that and think, well, this is what I heard. <laughs> but yeah, that, well, actually. yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. At the start of that uh, answer, though, you did say using the Enneagram in a conscious way. Mm. Are you saying that you can use the Enneagram in a non-conscious way? Mm. Well, that's a rumor. That, that's a rumor I've heard. Uh, that's a rumor. Yeah. So, that, you know, I, I think one of the things that uh, Russ alluded to in the foreword, and again, you have to be really careful about this, but, you know, for, yeah, for some people... Uh, the Enneagram is kind of a fun thing to learn about and talk about, and and uh, and and that's great. That's that's an introduction that may uh, down the road provide a, a doorway for them going into you know a deeper understanding of their own suffering. Because it, it seems to me that most people, myself included, I didn't come into inner work with the Enneagram because I was like having a great day and life was good, right? I. I got uh, dragged there by my own unconscious suffering, and you know, uh, God put His foot on my neck and said, "Either you wake up or you die." It's just that simple. You know, in my work, I've noticed. You know, most people come to the more serious, you know, uh, work with the Enneagram because of their own emotional suffering. They're hurting. Life doesn't feel good, and who knows? You know, I noticed that there is sort of an interesting thing happening. You know, a lot of kind of instant expert entertainer type folks using the Enneagram, which which is a lot of fun. There, there is value in it. You know, that's how the word gets out. And when the time's right, if they're supposed to go deeper, they will. Otherwise, they'll, they'll just write, you know, funny stories and have fun with it. I, You know, so, yeah, there, there can be kind of a attitude around, well, we're the people who do the real work. Well, my daughter would say, you know, you got to work on yourself, Dad. you got a long way to go. And go. Yes, it's true. Thank you. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I'd like to continue sticking with just the cover <laughs> uh, with, with some of the words that you used. Um, and, and ironically, the book, the first book that I got from Amazon um, was a completely different book on the inside. So, for me, I don't know what's inside the book. It's just the cover. So, that's all I had to go off of. Did the cover have the correct cover and then the inside was different? Correct cover and inside was like like why I started training jujitsu or something like that. That's great. So, well, that book, yeah, so, that, that particular copy, you just hold it to your head and rub it. And, and you'll get all the wisdom you've ever needed. So, so that was a special okay. copy for a special person. Wow, that one's worth so much more than mine. Wow. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you would get so that it's, one, it's, Creek. Yeah. I would. I would. Um, but in all seriousness, right? So um, diving into, wow, there's just a couple things. So like... The alchemy of the, the title of the book is The Alchemy of the Enneagram in Transforming Addiction. When you say, when, to me, that when it comes, what comes to mind is transforming addiction, is, it's not about the, you, it doesn't seem like you're demonizing addiction, but rather like we're transforming it, not trying to get rid of it. Is that, was that playing in your mind at all? It's not about demonizing addiction, it's really seeing that addiction, in my belief, uh, is a result of, of undigested suffering that people don't have the tools to or the understanding to transform into, you know, essence or 
their own gold. So uh, it's really, really along that line. It's just about how do we use this thing called addiction, we understand it well, to transform and bring something that really is the deeper wish that a person has. Because everybody I've met in addiction, okay. I've you know, met so many, so many men uh, and, and women, and underneath their addiction is always a wish to uh, have an open heart and to live fully. Yeah. So okay. So what you're saying is, tra- like, transforming addiction, the the opposite end of that addiction, or the other side of the coin, is just someone's deep desire to live well and fully. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's that's great. That sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to dive into is you're saying it's. Uh, a guide for professionals helping men recover their lives. I'm curious, why was the focus on men? Is that just because you've worked mostly with men, or well, the majority of my stories, you know, because I rely on you know individual you know stories of men in different phases of their transformation. So that's why I you know that's why I I was working with a type three. Co- uh, editor who's just streamlined it says you got to nail you got to be focused you don't want to spread it to you know all over the place and uh so that's one reason you know um and also because the, a lot of the work well this is probably the next question coming but you know a guide for professionals really is for coaches therapists sponsors people uh working with folks in addiction and giving them some tools for understanding uh, what's happening with this person and and the first real goal was to really try to help anybody who has a a loved one who's a, a struggling with addiction to know that that you know the problem with addiction is when people start to go down the levels of health they just get rowdier and and uh, more like a bull in the china shop and just really uh, not particularly likable and, and they're quite certain that you're the idiot and they aren't. So what are you going to do, right? And uh, so part of it was to try to create a context for compassion. But, you know, I could have, I also wanted it for any man or woman who was in recovery trying to understand what's the way out, you know, what what's going on with me. So, again, the, uh, the challenge was basically, but she says, if you aim it towards professionals, Eventually, you'll have a, a larger outreach than if you aim it towards people in recovery, men and women who are trying to recover. So I just uh, trusted her uh, strategy and said, let's go with it because, uh, sound, you know, everything she said sounded really reasonable. And I think there's a lot of truth in it. So my daughter said to me, well, why is it just for men? I said, well, it's really not just for men, but it's a great mystery. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but in, in <laughs> fact... <laughs> In fact, there was a reason, which is, you know, uh, and I, at the first of the book, I talk about how this really is for both men and women. And I, I hope it doesn't cause, uh, I have a sense that people who need to, to get the book will. And uh, hmm. we'll see. Hmm. So. Yeah. Uh, Michael, you talk about how you just mentioned that addiction is kind of about undigested suffering. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, I would assume lots of people. Uh, haven't quite digested all the suffering they experienced growing up. So I'm curious if you could help us understand why certain people become addicted and others don't, because I'm sure lots of people who aren't addicted haven't dealt with all their suffering. Yeah. Right? Well, my my guess simply would be that someone's you know has 
suffering that they don't know how to transform or get help for. And usually it, you know, the, the, the sort of foundational addiction is, is addiction to my personality patterns and getting hooked on mm. the less healthy patterns and, and that being, in a sense, my, on any of the types as they are more caught up in suffering, they have more a more and more difficult shield to penetrate. And also as that shield goes up, they also can't see that they have the shield. It's just something that is a survival instinct. So I think for some folks, they're not drawn towards particular substances, but usually, you know, other things like gambling, shopping, sex addiction, uh, a lot of different other expressions that are still, you know, you call them process addictions that aren't around substances. So yeah. Mm -hmm. anyway, I, I think that uh, a lot of you know, workaholism, but if you look at how a person goes down, you know, and becomes more and more defended, uh, the, the first thing is that people get really comfortable with their suffering. It's like, I bet the shield, uh, it's predictable, uh, allows me to navigate life and not feel certain kinds of suffering. And what I notice, and this happens also in recovery, is people start to feel better. There's a part of them that feels like they're leaving their real life behind. Like I'm starting to feel good and I don't have these other ways I'm identified with my suffering. And, and you know, if they don't have really good coaching or therapists with them, they can end up just, you know, sabotaging their work and going back to what's familiar. So that happens mm -hmm. all the time in, in recovery. We were talking about the levels of health, Michael. One of the reasons I think I struggle with the levels of health is because it feels like you're sort of casting judgment on a person, you know, and sometimes without knowing their whole story or knowing what they're really capable of, we can sort of impose these expectations on them for growth that maybe because of reasons beyond their control, they're just, they're not able to grow, you know, up through those levels of health in the way that we would hope or in even the way that they would hope. And so... My question um, is if you have any cautions or wisdom to offer people using your book, using the levels of health with people that they're trying to help in ways that discern and recognize limitations on those in individuals based on perhaps years of substance abuse that has maybe created some deficiencies for them. Well, I think that's a, a really good uh, question. And so, as you know, all all forms of truth can be used to harm people unwittingly and accidentally. So, so if I, you know, have some idea what, or I think your type is, and I start responding to some projected story about how you should be responding, uh, that's not going to be good for the client. They're not going to feel, or anybody, they're not going to feel accepted, met where they're at, and and they'll feel judged, and and ultimately. You know, that's that's a precaution that anybody in the helping field has to be aware of is, is am I somehow, you know, framing people with my limited understanding and, and then having an expectation for how they ought to respond. And mm -hmm. and that's uh, that's really important not to do is not to project your story of, you know, let's say a individual is an eight. So. You know, do you start, you know, creating a story, analyzing uh, all their behavior by the structure of the eight, or are you just simply aware and noticing and, and really bringing a, a present sense of observation and kindness to whatever you see? Because it ultimately, 
you know, if it doesn't create space for, you know, the person to just be as they are and to be received with kindness, then then it's not going to work. And I, I think that mm-hmm. um, that's a really good point. And uh, when I do a revision, I will that'll be one of my first points. You know, don't don't <laughs> don't project your story. Uh, you know, because it happens all the time. I mean, we see this in you know in in panels and you know interactions. Uh, you know, like the thing I always joke about is uh, when people come to workshops, relationships workshop, 90% of them are there to see if they can get the information on their partner so they can fix their partner and then their life will <laughs> be better. And I, and I always say, well, good luck on that. My wife hasn't taken the bait on that ever. I've actually stopped trying to change her. She <laughs> seems to function fine without me. I don't know how that happened. Yeah. But, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's definitely... Uh, uh, something to really be concerned about and and and, and it can and it probably will get misused from time to time so that's a great really great question well um unfortunately we're coming i think we're coming to a close here but michael i wanted to just ask kind of two more questions to close us out here so i'm curious what would you say is the kind of proudest aspect or proudest part of the book for you well i think what Lindsay pointed to was this you know was my wish and hope to create an appreciation for the, mm. you know, men I've gotten to work with, the the beauty of who they are, and and you know, really bringing, you know, I start all each of the chapters with uh, one of the, you know, one of the types who's really done a lot of work, and they're they're in contact with their mm. gifts, and they're just, uh, you know, beautiful beautiful souls, and the people. You know, and so I think I'm happiest with that, that I feel like the humanity, at least 70% happy with that. Uh, that I, I can't yes. do much better than that. I, that's good. But <laughs> I says, that's good enough. I understand. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I will say, having read this book, I, I really enjoyed it. My favorite sections of the book were the type chapters mm-hmm. because of exactly what you said. You know, I, I think people do with this uh, non-conscious understanding using of the Enneagram that we sort of named earlier, I think that lots of people are confusing a real-life person for the mm-hmm. type. And I think I think what you did so well is bringing the humanity to the person that's operating the type. Mm-hmm. And uh, just reading each of them, it, it felt so human, as you said, and it felt vulnerable and it felt, it gave me clear understanding for how to more softly, I think, approach people and compassionately. Mm-hmm. So that's especially what it, at least what it gave for me is just more compassion for the human yeah. that's trying to manage their suffering with their specific strategy or their, their specific mm-hmm. type. So yeah. it was yeah. really beautiful for, in that way. Thank yeah, and, and I do think along those same lines, right, was reading through the types, the just being able to better be empathetic towards the suffering of the other types because mm-hmm. there were stories mm-hmm. in there. They were just how you worded things mm-hmm. in particular. There was just like I could I could have a deeper felt sense of that connection to that type and how that suffering would feel. Um, and so just mm-hmm. the whole book just really cultivates some beautiful compassion for yourself and for others. So thank you for after the 4,596 years. <laughs> yes. That's right. Well, you know... You got to live long <laughs> enough to make these things happen. Michael Naylor, <laughs> yep, jujitsu yep. master of the Enneagram. <laughs> yes, <there laughs> yes, that's awesome. 
Uh, All right. Well, uh, Michael, I do want to point our listeners to—I do want to point our listeners to the fact that we've had you on previously uh, in another beautiful episode. One of my favorites of our—I think it was last season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, of all the episodes recorded, one of my favorites. So I want to point people back to that. I'm not sure what number that is, but we'll put that in the show notes. Oh. We'll also include a link to your book. Where where's the best place for people to find your information? How they can find you and just to purchase your book? Well, uh, at at this point, uh, Amazon is the the go-to but books a million barnes and noble target uh, etc will all be uh, carrying it probably by next week so and then you can always go to my uh, website at uh, enneagrammain.com and uh and you know information's there also so uh, yes yeah and having done a few coaching sessions with michael i would if you have the time i would definitely mm-hmm. say hop on he he, he drops knowledge bombs oh, all regular. awesome so, it's great Oh, well, <laughs> well, thank you. And I, and I am really, uh, you know, one of the goals of the book really was to try to go beneath the sort of definitions of the person to what's really going on in their heart and soul. So I'm uh, happy that, that you like that. And, and so that's Absolutely. good. Thank you for the feedback. I appreciate it. Thanks so yeah. much, Michael. Absolutely. Yeah, great to be with you all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time.